You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good afternoon. It's great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, Embark's Tampa Market President, and I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. On this week's episode, we're here with Nicole Harger, a Senior Director in our National Quality Practice, to discuss equity instruments. Nicole, Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Of course. Thanks for having me again. Of course. Adam, I know today we're diving into each of the three instrument classes that are within the scope of ASC 480. So let's move in to the first class of instruments, mandatorily redeemable financial instruments. It sounds pretty cut and dry from the name, but you've given me enough warning about the complexity in this space to know better. So what exactly is a mandatorily redeemable financial instrument? It's a mouthful. It is a <laughs> mouthful. Uh, yeah, I think maybe just to stepping back a little bit, just let's talk first about like what is just a redeemable financial instrument, and then we'll move specifically into what makes it mandatorily redeemable. So a redeemable financial instrument is any instrument that may be redeemed at either the issuer's option, which is often called a callable instrument, the holder's option, which would be considered a puttable instrument, or maybe it's just by nature of the contract. So an instrument that has a redemption feature um, on a specific date or you know, from the occurrence of a specific event. Mandatorily redeemable, that, you know, that term used in ASC 480 is really referring to any redeemable financial instrument that has a re- contractual requirement to actually redeem the instrument. And because that contract requires the instrument to be redeemed, um, it must be unconditional for that redemption to occur. So there must be a specified redemption date um, or determinable date or event that requires that redemption to occur. And because of that like obligation to redeem that instrument that is certain to occur, uh, the guidance is gonna basically tell you these types of instruments need to be reflected as liabilities. Okay, so can any instrument type be considered mandatorily redeemable? No. (laughs) Okay. So this is where the guidance is clear. So an instrument that meets this class of instruments in ASC 480 um, has to be issued in the form of a share itself or some equivalent kind of equity interest. So, you know, like partnership interest or a membership interest. Um, And it also must be settled through the issuer's own assets, so either through cash or other assets um, to satisfy that redemption obligation. Okay. Talk to me a little bit about determining the redemption date. You used determinal date event that that it's certain to occur. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so... You know, a lot of times the redemption date could be specified. It tells you March 15th, this is going to be redeemed, but sometimes the redemption date isn't specified. Um, So in those circumstances, an issuer still should determine whether or not there is what we call a determinable date or an event that is certain to occur. So some common examples of events that are certain to occur could include the death of the instrument or the holder of the instrument, 
their termination, their retirement um, of any person that holds the instrument, those events are certain to occur. Um, and when you're thinking about events that are certain to occur, you don't really think about the likelihood of any of those events. It's not really relevant in the assessment itself. Okay. And are there any instrument types that are characterized as mandatorily redeemable financial instruments that don't meet the requirements to qualify as this class of instrument under ASC 480? Yeah, there can be. And so I think this is where it's, you know, it's an important point to raise is that you know, if you're making this evaluation for any kind of freestanding financial instruments, going through this 480 guidance, you know, I think we talked about this in part one of our podcast, but you really got to spend the time like looking into the, the contracts, the agreements for the instruments themselves. So oftentimes, you know, there could be situations where an instrument, like you said, is it's described as mandatorily redeemable. Um, but there could be some other feature that's potentially included with that instrument that actually makes it not mandatorily redeemable. So let me give you an example of what I just tried to illustrate to you. Um, so if you take a mandatorily redeemable convertible preferred share, you know, on the surface, it sounds like, you know, you've got a mandatorily redeemable instrument. It's in the name. So it's got to be a mandatorily redeemable instrument under 480. I feel like I've got this a quick answer to what I'm looking at here. but. In reality, you actually have to look at that instrument closer because of this embedded conversion option that exists in the instrument. Um, the inclusion of that option could potentially make the condition to be mandatorily redeemable um, conditional versus unconditional. And what I mean by that is because you give the holder the option to convert their instrument to other shares, you may not actually ever have a mandatorily like redeemable obligation to fulfill because if they elect to convert before the mandatorily redeemable event or whatever you know comes to fruition then you're never going to have to satisfy that obligation so that's where i'm saying you could have situations where introducing other features into the instrument can change the accounting outcome so that that's why this area of gap is such a pain in the butt and everyone you know, some people maybe love it, but most people are just like, get me out of here because it becomes very convoluted and it does require a lot of diligence in reviewing um, instrument contracts. Okay. Well, and so Adam, you also spoke a little bit about that the instrument must transfer cash or other assets of the issuer. Yep. Does this include an issuer settling the instrument by issuing their own equity? No. So that kind of goes back to that example I just gave you. Like, so if you had a conversion feature and you're settling that, that instrument by issuing your own shares, or if you have a redemption feature that um, allows you to settle it by issuing shares, um, it doesn't satisfy this class of instrument. It doesn't necessarily mean it's not in the scope of other instruments under 480, but it's not mandatorily redeemable because a mandatorily redeemable instrument has to be settled in assets of the company. So assets of the issuer, and that does not include its own equity shares. Those are assets of the shareholders. So assets of the issuer are going to be cash, other assets, things like that. Okay. And so once you have this financial instrument that meets this class of instrument, how do you account for it? What's the next step? Yeah. So all financial instruments that are mandatorily redeemable, they're initially measured and recognized at fair value. And then subsequently, it's actually going to depend. So there's a few factors you need to look at. And it really centers around whether the redemption date and the redemption amount are fixed or whether one or both of those are variable. So if both are fixed, so you've got a fixed redemption date and a fixed redemption amount, 
then you're really going to kind of treat the instrument almost like a dead instrument where you're going to essentially remeasure it at the present value of the amount to be paid at settlement. And you're going to accrete to that value under the effective interest method because you know exactly like today it's worth X, but in two years when I have to redeem this instrument, it's worth Y. So now I need to accrete to that number over that two year period. On the other hand, if you got any instruments that, or I'm sorry, any factors that are variable, so it's either of the redemption date is variable based on some type of parameter or the redemption amount could vary, um, then you're essentially going to have to remeasure it at the amount that would be repaid under the contract terms, assuming the reporting date is ultimately the settlement date. So almost like fast forwarding what would have to be paid if that reporting date, if it was going to be settled as of this reporting date today. Okay. So lots of complexities here. Yep. What else do you need to remind us about mandatory, mandatorily redeemable <laughs> instruments? Yeah, I think one thing else you have to keep in mind is that, you know, there, there can be a need to reassess um, these instruments each reporting period. So kind of in my example where, um, you know, I mentioned there was a conversion feature um, included with a mandatorily redeemable instrument. Because of that conversion feature, it didn't make it subject to this guidance. Well, if that conversion feature was only outstanding, like, hey, you have the ability to convert these shares, but you have to do it within the first three years. After those three years, when that conversion feature expires, you really don't have anything else left in that particular instrument that wouldn't make it mandatorily redeemable. So now it could become redeemable or mandatorily redeemable in the future. So there is a need to kind of reassess and make sure that, you know, nothing's changed that could potentially kick it out or kick it into this guidance. And then on the flip side, you could also have it where an instrument's terms are maybe modified and it now makes a mandatorily redeemable instrument contingently redeemable because you've introduced something that adds a contingency um, to the redemption of that instrument. And as we talked about at the onset, mandatorily redeemable financial instruments have to be unconditional. So there can't be any caveats to that redemption. Um, the only other thing I'd probably mention is that there are some scope exceptions, which everyone loves because it potentially takes you out of some of the accounting. So. Um, there's three specific scope exceptions that relate only to this class of instrument. And so one is applicable to all entities. Um, and it's basically that shares that are mandatorily redeemable only upon the liquidation or termination of the reporting entity, they're exempt from this guidance in its entirety, so don't have to think about those. Entities that, you know, if, if you've got a parent entity that's preparing consolidated financial statements, there's a scope exception for mandatorily redeemable uh, non-controlling interests that are only redeemable upon the liquidation or termination of the subsidiary. They are also exempt from aspects of the 480 guidance. So there's a final scope exception for non-public entities, which allows them to exempt mandatorily redeemable financial instruments that are not, do not include fixed redemption dates or fixed redemption amounts or ones that are tagged to some type of index from the 480 guidance in its entirety. So said differently, you know, if a non-public entity has outstanding shares that are mandatorily redeemable for cash upon, you know, the death of the holder, we talked about those determinable dates or events that could occur, that were certain to occur. Um, for non-public entities, those shares would not be accounted for as liabilities under ASC 480, even though they do meet the definition of mandatorily redeemable financial instruments. They allow a little scape. Uh, kind of a scapegoat exception for that. Perfect. Okay, Nicole, let's go on and move to our next class of instruments within the scope of ASC 480. 
obligations to repurchase shares by transferring assets. Easier said than the last one, I feel like. Let's <laughs> let's hope, Adam. Let's see. <laughs> what types of instruments fall into this scope of class? So unlike mandatorily redeemable financial instruments, this class of instrument can be any type of financial instrument except for an outstanding share. The obligation at inception may also be conditional or unconditional. And then settlement of the instrument is done by transferring cash or other assets. Um, common intru- intru- instruments that may meet um, this class of instrument under ASC 480 include forward contracts, which require the issuer to purchase its shares through physical settlement or net cash settlement, or freestanding warrants and other similar instruments on shares that are redeemable. Okay. Well, let's break apart some of those requirements for this class of instruments. You said that the instruments could not be an outstanding share. So I have a couple questions here. Number one, what counts as an outstanding share? And then two, does an equity contract for a share pass the smell test here? (laughs) So to answer your first question, the term share is used broadly to relate to any equity or ownership interest. So depending on the legal structure of an entity, Various terms may be used, but are broadly meant to mean the same thing. Um, If the instrument in question qualifies as a share, it would not be in scope of this instrument class, but it could still be subject to the 480 guidance by meeting one of the other two class types. Um, On the other hand, an equity contract could meet this instrument type because the contract itself is not considered an outstanding share. So instead, it is potentially just settled in shares or some underlying equity or ownership interest. Okay, super helpful here. Let's look at the next obligation. What do we need to keep in mind? So the instrument must require the issuer to repurchase its own shares or be indexed to such an obligation. So keep in mind, the obligation for this instrument class can either be conditional or unconditional. So for example, a forward purchase contract could contain an unconditional or conditional obligation to repurchase an issuer's equity shares by transferring assets. Um, First, the instrument here is not an outstanding share like we just talked about, so it meets that factor. But in terms of the obligation, a forward purchase contract could create an unconditional obligation if it requires physical physical settlement by delivering cash for a fixed number of the issuer's equity shares. Um, On the other hand, a forward purchase contract could have a conditional obligation to settle. So this would occur if the contract required or allowed an issuer to net cash settle the contract. The manner of settlement with the counterparty depends on whether the fair value of the forward purchase contract is in a gain or loss position. Okay, so in your last example, does that represent an instrument that is indexed to an obligation or to repurchase shares? That's exactly right. So when we say indexed to an obligation, we essentially mean an instrument where the obligation to repurchase is based on variations in the fair value. So when the net cash payment or receipt on an instrument is based on the issuer's requirement to buy its own shares, 
the instrument is considered indexed to such an obligation. Okay. And so we've mentioned the forward purchase contract being net settled as an example of this type of indexed obligation. But what are some of the other common examples of where an instrument is indexed to an obligation? So a couple other common examples could include a puttable warrant contract or a written put option that is net cash settled. Okay, so let me get this straight. So once you have a financial instrument that meets this class of instrument, how do you account for it? So the initial and subsequent accounting for this class of instrument can actually vary depending on the type of instrument that fell into its scope. So let me explain. So ASC 4ID does provide specific guidance for instruments in this class that are physically settled forward contracts to repurchase shares versus all other types of instruments that meet this class type. Okay, so let's take that specific instrument type, the physically settled forward purchase contract. What does that look like? So the initial accounting for these contracts is to recognize them at fair value. The fair value should be adjusted for any unstated rights associated with the instrument. Uh, generally, the initial measurement is done one of two ways. So the first, um, you discount the settlement amount at the rate implicit in the contract after taking into account any consideration or unstated rights or privileges that may have affected the terms of the transaction. Or the other way is to determine the amount of cash that would be paid under the conditions specified in the contract if the shares were repurchased immediately, adjusted for any consideration or unstated rights or privileges. Um, the subsequent accounting here is similar to what we talked about with mandatorily redeemable shares. Um, it depends whether the settlement amount and date is fixed or variable. So when it is fixed, the subsequent amount is at present value of the amount paid at the settlement date. Interest is accrued as well using the rate implicit at inception in the contract. Um, on the other hand, when, when the settlement amount and or date is variable, the subsequent measurement is based on the cash that would be paid if contract settlement occurred at the reporting date. And then the change in the carrying amount between the reporting periods would be charged to interest expense. Okay, so tell me though, what about all the other instrument types that meet this class? How does the accounting work for those? Yeah, so all other contracts that embody an obligation to repurchase an entity's own shares, other than the physically settled forward contracts that we talked about, um, are initially and subsequently measured at fair value with changes in fair value recognized in earnings. Again, these would include net cash settled forward contracts to repurchase shares, physically settled or net cash settled written put options, um, warrants for redeemable shares, and puttable warrants, just to name a few. Okay. Again, Nicole, any other helpful reminders or things that we need to keep in mind around this instrument class type? Yeah, so one thing um, about this instrument class that our listeners should keep in mind is that in certain circumstances, the instrument may be classified as an asset. So this is true when the instrument is, is indexed to an obligation to repurchase shares, like a net cash settled forward purchase contract. So for those instrument types, there can be situations where the mechanics of the contract actually put the issuer in a gain position at the settlement date 
which would require it to be presented as an asset. All right. Well, Adam, back over to you. Let's go ahead and just round out the trifecta here with the third class of instruments, certain obligations to issue a variable number of shares. Let's start with the same question I had on the other instrument classes. What types of instruments specifically fall into this class? Yeah, so unlike the other two class of instruments that we talked about, this one is, I guess we'll say, is a bit more welcoming because it allows different instrument types to actually qualify for it. So it could be instruments issued in the form of shares or share equivalents or even other financial instruments. So I think it's also important that you distinguish whether the instrument is an outstanding share or not because it impacts the type of obligation that is allowed. So just to expand on that a little bit here, or if the instrument is an outstanding share or share equivalent, it's it has to have an unconditional obligation. Um, on the other hand, if it's not an outstanding share that you're evaluating, that obligation can be either conditional or unconditional. So a little more flexibility there. Okay. And what about the settlement? It clearly settled in shares based on the instrument class name, but how does that variability in the amount of shares work? Yeah, great point that you make there. You know, it, it is important to understand um, how that settlement works and how that variability um, comes into play. And it's really driven by... Um, what's known as the monetary value that's associated with the instrument. So understanding whether or not that monetary value will remain fixed or will vary in responses to other market conditions or changes is important when you're evaluating these types of instruments under this you know, variable number of shares to be issued um, class. And I know because you're going to ask, what is monetary value? You know, monetary value is basically what's the fair value of the cash, the shares, or the other um, instruments that an issuer would have to give the holder at the settlement date. So this may be a dumb question, but if all of these instruments are settled in shares, why aren't they just classified as equity? There are no dumb questions here. <laughs> oh, come on, Adam. <laughs> No, the FASB concluded that equity classification for these types of instruments is not appropriate because there really are characteristics associated with this instrument that don't expose the holder of it to the typical risks and rewards that an owner would have under a normal shareholder relationship. You know, you really can view it as that the issuer is more or less using their own shares to settle some type of obligation. Um, which is why instruments that fall into this class are, are liabilities, more or less. Um, you know, one thing that you do have to keep in mind, again, is that concept of monetary value and really, you know, trying to figure out whether or not the way that monetary value is structured, does it expose the holder to the risks and benefits um, of changes in the fair value of the underlying shares or not? And that's really where the question comes into play when evaluating these instruments. Okay, so let's go back to what you just said about monetary value. How does what, mo what monetary value being based on impact the instruments in this class? Yeah, so for an instrument to uh, be subject to this class of 480 instruments, monetary value has to be essentially based on, and I'll say solely or predominantly based on one of three kind of factors here. So, you know, one is the most obvious, which is just going to be a fixed monetary amount. Um, but it could also be based on variations that occur. So it could be variations in something other than the fair value of the issuer's equity shares, or it could be variations in the fair value of the issuer's equity shares, but the monetary value kind of moves inversely in relation to that. So um, 
you know, having a monetary value that meets any of those three things, then it's solely based on any of those three things or predominantly based on any of those three things will kick you into this guidance. Okay. And so maybe to help our listeners apply those concepts, give me an example of a monetary value that falls into each of these three factors. So we'll start with the first one. So a fixed monetary amount. So a typical example you have here is just stock settled debt, which is basically, you know, you've got a fixed debt amount that's going to be due, you know, at the maturity date of that debt, and you're going to repay it based on a number of shares that are equal to that fixed debt amount. So regardless of whether the share value goes up or down, you're always going to get back that fixed amount of debt when it comes time to settlement. So it really doesn't matter how the the value, you know, the fair value of those underlying shares fluctuate or not. So that's what kicks, um, you know, an instrument with that type of monetary value into this this class of instruments. Um, the other one, so a variation in something other than the fair value. So you know, example here could be a preferred share that's settled in a variable number of common shares, um, but that monetary value is maybe tied to some type of commodity price index or something. So it's it's not anything that relates to the fair value of the shares itself, but that variability is going to be driven by something outside the fair value of the shares. And then the last one we talked about was a monetary value that moves inversely to the value of the shares. So uh, you know, don't see this one as often, but a, a typical instrument that would fall potentially in this type of class is a, or in this type of monetary factor rather, um, would be a net share settled written put option or a net sh- share settled forward purchase contract. Okay. And so one of the things you mentioned was that monetary value could be predominantly based on any of these three factors. But what do you mean by that? Or what is an example of how this could be applied? The FASB was actually purposeful by not saying it had to be solely based on one of these three factors. They were they were purposeful to include that predominant criteria, and, and, and they've done this in other aspects of GAAP where they're worried about people trying to circumvent the guidance by, you know, including certain language or features or things that could potentially kick them out if they made it more of like an absolute requirement. Um, so an, a common example of this um, you know, where we might see this in the guidance is where the number of shares to be delivered is based on a fixed dollar amount um, and let's say a 30-day average trading price rather than the trading price on the settlement date. You know, in that circumstance, even though the fair value of the shares delivered upon settlement is not completely fixed, you know, the FASB concluded, and they have an example of this in the guidance, is that the monetary value is still predominantly fixed, and therefore the financial instrument in that case would still be classified as a liability. Um, and so when most people are thinking about, like, predominant, you know, the, the barometer here really is just to mean, like, is it 50% or more when we're thinking about if the monetary value is based on any of those three factors? So if more than half of the settlement is based on some type of fixed amount, then you're probably got a predominant monetary value that will be subject to this class of instruments. Okay, but tell me, Adam, then what happens when an instrument has multiple settlement outcomes or alternatives? How do you navigate that? Yeah, there's... It's a good question, and definitely, you know, we we see a lot of complex instruments um, that come up from time to time where they have, you know, multiple settlement outcomes. And so, when you have these scenarios, or you have more complex financial instruments being being evaluated, there really is kind of a two-step approach you want to think through here. So, you know, step one is where the you know issuer is going to identify all those component obligations, um, each 
component obligation should be evaluated to determine whether that component obligation actually requires the delivery of variable number of shares based on one of those monetary values that hit one of those three factors. Um, if it does, then the issuer next has to determine whether that monetary value of that component um, is the predominant one over the collective monetary values of all the other components identified. And so again, if there is one component that is predominant that meets one of those three factors, then the whole instrument is going to be classified as a liability under this class. So you kind of have to take it piece by piece. If one meets it, then you got to say, okay, the one that met it, is it the is it the one that's really driving the settlement here that would fall into this class of instruments? Okay, so let's go ahead and assume that we have an instrument that meets this class. Okay. How does the accounting work? Uh, here, pretty simple for the most part. So it really just depends on that monetary value again. So if the monetary value is fixed, uh, again, you know, my example was it's like stock settled debt. So it's very similar to what you would have with other debt instruments. So, you know, initially you're going to measure the instrument at fair value, but then going forward, you're essentially accreting that towards its uh, settlement amount under the effective interest method. Uh, but for all other instruments that fall into this class, it's essentially just fair value accounting. So initial measurement at fair value and then remeasure at fair value each reporting period. Okay, super helpful. Nicole, before we go, since we hit so hard on the presentation side of things, let's wrap up quickly around some of the other reporting considerations that we might have here. Starting with disclosures, does ASC 480 layer on any significant additional disclosures? So, you know, I think since the FASB decided to throw all this convoluted guidance at us, they, you know, issuers, they uh, took it easy from a disclosure perspective. So ASC 480 does not require substantial additional disclosures in the notes of the financial statements. Um, most of the requirements align with similar requirements for other equity interests outlined in ASC 505 or derivatives in ASC 815-40. Got it. So... What about though EPS and does ASC 480 provide any guidance to impacts there? There is limited guidance that's provided on certain types of instruments, but it does not comprehensively address how to determine EPS for instruments within its scope. Generally, an entity would just apply the traditional guidance in ASC 260. However, as I mentioned about certain instruments, ASC 480 does require an entity to make certain adjustments to its EPS calculation for your favorite mandatorily redeemable financial instruments and two for forward contracts that require uh, physical settlement by repurchase of a fixed number of equity shares of common stock in exchange for cash. So just something to keep in mind if you do report EPS and you have those types of instruments to look at the um, instrument-specific guidance. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and end today's discussion here. Thank you both for enlightening us and all of our listeners. Adam, Nicole, thank you for keeping us up to date on accounting matters. And thank you for again for following along to all of our listeners in another episode. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant, subsequent, authoritative guidance issued.